One Emotional Podcast, Conversations for Inspiration on the Go. We offer on-the-go inspiration because our whole heart is set on beauty and our best bets are set on art. Hi, Leti. How are you? <laughs> How are you today? Hi, Marion. It's so good to see you. It's good. I'm excited to be here. Uh, thank you so much for joining this one podcast. And I would like to start by introducing this amazing woman that we that I have right in front of me here. Her name is Leti Jauregui, and she is a rock star. She's founder of Crea Comunidades de Emprendedores Sociales. ¿Me está escuchando bien? Yo no me escucho bien. ¿Tú? Sí, a ver. Te escucho con un poquitito de eco, pero te escucho bien. Hi, Leti. How are you? Welcome to Luan Podcast. Thank you, Marion. I'm so excited to be here and to see you even if, if through a screen. Yes, it's a pleasure to see you even through a screen. I would like to start this podcast by introducing this amazing woman that I have in front of me. She is a rock star and a woman that I personally admire a lot. She is uh, Leti Jauregui and she's founder of Crea Comunidades Emprendedoras Sociales. She's recognized as one of the most powerful women in Mexico by Forbes magazine. Leti is a serial entrepreneur passionate about financial inclusion and technology. She specializes in fintech, insurtech, blockchain, and AI applications in different industries to drive innovation. During the last 16 years, or more than 16 years, Leti has been focused on disruptive innovation and economic development in emerging markets through several companies and organizations, including CREA, that has supported and trained over 200,000 women entrepreneurs from marginalized communities in Mexico and Central America. And we will talk about the amazing job that CREA is doing in Mexico. Leti is an agile investor and general partner of Leap Global Partners. This is a cross-border fund and actively involved in the Mexican startup and entrepreneurship ecosystem. She's also a member of Mujeres Invirtiendo, We Invest, LATAM, and All Rise, among others. Leticia is a promoter of the development of high impact and social entrepreneurs through networks such as Equine Green, Global Shapers, and Sandbox, amongst many others. Leti has proven track record as an independent board director of private and public companies, as well as nonprofit organizations in the US and Mexico with broad expertise in digital transformation, strategy, implementation, talent, and governance. Wow. <laughs> You are amazing. And the topic that I would like to start today is you have a lot of experience in um, female entrepreneurship, all the work that you've done in CREA throughout these years since you founded it and where CREA is today has been outstanding. So female entrepreneurs represent the fastest growing category of entrepreneurship worldwide, especially in the recent years. And more women have started having not only any kind of businesses, but social businesses. What do you think are the main reasons for this growth in this specific sector? Uh, I, I think it's exciting because what we're seeing is essentially 
on the one hand, more women recognized as entrepreneurs, right? So a lot of times the work of women was invisibilized eh, or if a woman had a business, it was more like their hobby or something that they did on the side in addition to caring for their families or having eh, some sort of personal responsibilities at the at, eh, of care. And so A, we're seeing more women recognized as entrepreneurs and self-identifying as entrepreneurs. Eh, and B, I think more and more women are exploring understanding and breaking into industries and markets that hadn't been uh, open to them before. Uh, it's really exciting to see the fast growth. And I think we see it across the board, uh, be it SMBs and small and medium businesses or with startups. Unfortunately, I don't think it's growing as fast as we need in order to achieve gender equality. No, it's still the case that some grow a uh, large but most of them stay small uh, they grow they grow more slowly than men's companies for different reasons that we can discuss and uh, the oecd for example estimates that less than two percent of high impact companies are led by women mm -hmm. no? and a lot of times if we try to understand why they grow more slowly or they're having kind of a more more they're struggling to to develop it has to do with the fact that they have a lot more limited access to formal funding sources. And so this limits their, ac their access to financial and human resources that could allow them to grow faster. And if we focus on high impact entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs, what we're seeing is a very significant gap with regards to, to male founders. No, yeah. So at the global level, we know that less than 3% of VC funding is going to women. If we look at Latin American women, it's less than 2% of that 3%. So it's like mm -hmm. essentially non-existent. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of the challenge uh, also has to do with the fact that less than 12% of decision makers in VC firms are women. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we actually look at female founding partners, the percentage is again below 3%. Uh, however, I think something that's really encouraging is that when women venture capitalists do make the decision, they're twice as likely to invest in a female founder team, in a female founded team than uh, in other teams. And you ask, like, why is it so important? No? So first, because we're seeing that uh, female founded companies tend to outperform male founded companies. So there's a study by Boston Consulting Group that shows that for every dollar that a, a woman founder raises, she generates 2.5 times more revenue than a male founder. It's just harder to raise that dollar and they tend to raise less dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, also, a first round capital showed a numbers of their portfolio performance and women in their portfolio performed 63% better than men. And finally, according to the Kaufman Foundation, return on investment of teams led by women is 35% higher than teams that only have men. No, mm -hmm. so. I think the case isn't just for women, it's for teams that add that diversity of perspective. And obviously we can dive deeper into intersectionality, but it's not just women as a monolithic category, but actually it was, there's a vast uh, diversity of women. And if we add racial or ethnic or socioeconomic uh, differences, then those layers kind of pile on and there's more and more gaps and more and more opportunities. Of course, but something that doesn't make that much sense is that, you know, women have the unit econs, maybe even more healthier than men running their businesses. And most of the time, you know, with investors kind of like, you know, the results or the number kind of like talk for themselves, right? So why is it that as a women, they're not getting funding? It's only because of a bias because the, the, the decision maker is, is, is a man? 
doesn't doesn't make partly, any sense if eventually they have all the results. I think partly it's bias, partly it's access. So they don't even get to present in the boardroom. And so if out of a hundred companies that you're seeing, maybe you get one or two, then evidently you might they might not be as competitive as 98 other companies where you're really aiming for kind of the cream of the crop or they never get to them and get to see them in detail because they may be in an industry or in a sector that is more female inclined and so they don't necessarily have the expertise or they feel uncomfortable no so there's there was a very very uh, sounded case when i became a, a social entrepreneur uh, of a company that worked on a period pads and so whenever they presented in a boardroom men got really uncomfortable and they didn't want to talk about it no? i don't want to talk about this topic i don't want to invest in this topic get it out of my office <laughs> so so Evidently, the more representation we have across the board, the better uh, this, these numbers will become. And I think for me, it's not just about unit economics. There's ample evidence that women entrepreneurs account for improved economic growth, for more stability, for more investments in health and education. And when a woman entrepreneur thrives, other women become excited they see them as role models they start businesses themselves mm -hmm. and they tend to create more jobs for women which also reduces the gender gap in the workforce no so mm -hmm. i think there's multiple positive effects uh, and uh, there's the need to keep pushing to keep opening up those spaces and a lot of times like with covid because what happened, you had less access to go and visit different deals. So you tend to then look at your own networks and networks tend to be male dominated. And so the ones that ended up getting more funding were male, were male founders. No, and again, like that, we saw that dip in investment in female entrepreneurs because mm -hmm. of that. Of course. And what role do you think emotions play in getting access to this funding? For example, I read this paper that said that 89% of men took jobs that they weren't qualified for, and only 19% of women took jobs that they felt they weren't qualified for. So women tend to take the job if they know or they already have experience, and men are like, okay, I don't know, but eventually oh, I will kind of like navigate it when, no, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. What kind of emotions do you think? Do you think women tend to be more insecure in the workforce, for example, compared with men? Or what other emotions do you think are kind of like bringing women into this uh, gap? I think what we're, we're it has a lot to do with nurturing and how we're brought up. Mm -hmm. uh, like everything that we get taught, uh, a lot of times points us in the direction of we have to be perfect, and it has to be like impeccable, and we have to be the best at being daughters mothers sisters wives <laughs> entrepreneurs like anything yes. and so it it starts to close the the space for that exploration around things you may not know as much about uh, but you need to like feel comfortable exploring or a understanding that prior experience contributes to you to your success in other areas that you may not know as much about no so mm -hmm. i think it's a question of we're not brought up that way. We're not encouraged to take that type of risk. And so when we're confronted with that, we tend to say, oh no, but wait, like I don't comply with every single thing. So I'm not even going to try. Whereas a lot of men just say, yeah, but, eh, let's wing it. I'll try it. If it works great, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter for mm -hmm. us. It's also, it, it tends to be more costly 
mm-hmm. to invest in those processes. No, so a lot of times we have other responsibilities. So it's uh, an incremental ask every time. So I think part could be a as well incapacity to take on more things, and so we have to then now take on that challenge. But in addition to that, you don't forego any of your other responsibilities. Whereas some men can have the luxury of saying, okay, I don't have to do this, not all men, but that also I think opens up those possibilities. And finally, I think a lot of times we, there's this like sense of imposter syndrome Mm. where you're like, ah, like, even if I get it, like it's, I'm never going to be enough. I'm not going to be able to succeed. So I may comply with the requirements, but I'm not going to be able to do it afterwards. So I'm not going to go for it. Not because I don't think I can get it, but because I don't think I can do it after. Of course. And it's quite interesting when you study the imposter syndrome, It most of the time, I think the, the percentage is pretty high, kind of like 97% of the time, it um, happens more with high achieving people which you would obviously think the opposite, like, wow, like these people are not self-aware of all the achievement they've done and eventually they feel, you know, this imposter syndrome. But I think I've seen it more and I want to ask you if you've seen it also in your career, I've seen it more kind of like in the field, more common with women than men. I know that both genders have it, but I've seen it more present with women. Has that been your experience as well? It has. And I can't speak for other women, but personally, I think, I, the more I know, the more, the more I know that I don't know enough about anything. <laughs> so part of it is like, instead of knowing more and saying, oh, okay, now I, I understand. Like, I'm like, oh no, wait, like there's this whole universe of things mm-hmm. that I should know more of. So that's part of it. The, the, the other part is as we strive for kind of higher leadership positions or more visibility and scope over kind of different topics and different opportunities, we tend to again be met by a gender barriers by less diversity so you kind of go into one level and you're like finally okay you kind of broke ground you're hopefully uh, seeing other women or helping other women access that space etc and every time you go up there's that challenge again and so again you question like am i here because i know because i deserve it am i here because I'm just like a number and I'm filling in a checkbox. Am I here because I know enough? Like all of these questions start coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, again, it's part of the upbringing, right? So at least I was brought up to really like continuously ask if I'm doing it right, if uh, no, like get validation. Yeah, validation at home. You get to a point where you're not going to ask for that external validation. So you're kind of like internally being like, oh, really? Yes, (laughs) no, yes. (laughs) Can I do it? <laughs> There's this Argentinian psychologist that I find fascinating that she says that, you know, she's, she's, I don't know, maybe 85 years old, more or less, but she says that, you know, feminism has brought a lot of obviously amazing things to women, no? such as, you know, more access to equal rights. I know this advancement of, you know, um, economic pay and to, you know, this kind of like, you know, respect and like being, you know, seen more, no? And these new policies. But she says that also women are paying a high price by this feminism because all the time we're demanding more of ourselves. And you mentioned that at the beginning, because now it's not only about 
nurturing maybe or taking care of i don't know your parents or you know being there for your husband or taking time for you or raising kids or not but now it's also about being successful at your career and all of those demands are at the same time in the same place it's not like you have some demands when you are i don't know um 80 years old and others when you're 15 no it's like right now you have all demands happening at the same time so sometimes it's honestly making people go crazy in the sense that we can't do it all at the same time <laughs> right what's your take on that i think it has to do with the gaps that still exist around feminism right so it started as a struggle and it's happened for decades and there's so many women that have done incredible work to try and really it pushed women's rights forward and have achieved incredible things. No? So where we are today has nothing to do with where women were decades ago. And thanks to them, we're much better. But there's still, I think, a large gap in understanding that feminism is about men and women. Mm -hmm. no? And when we talk about that equality, it shouldn't only mean that women now should have access to more economic opportunities and job opportunities and um, different types of rights. It should also mean that men have to take on some of those responsibilities, that there has to be a co-responsibility yeah. in care work, in housework, in a lot of these things. So if we had that, then it's not that we just keep piling on opportunities and things. It's that we're balancing no, a, a little more in the sense of, okay, so it's not you're not going to have this work opportunity, but still have to take on all of the care work at home mm -hmm. you're gonna get that but then men are taking on part of that care work so there is that space to open up that opportunity so that's a i think one thing that i would say is if we were able to really push feminism further hopefully that wouldn't be a price it's a price because we have those limitations and that hasn't kind of completely a gotten out of the responsibilities of women and into shared responsibilities there's another piece around it where um i think we've had like different waves of feminism where there's different ideas that work better or less well but i think there's also a lot of a judgment around women that decide they don't want to work for example no and so they also pay a price uh, because now it's like uh I, am i not enough because i'm not working I, am i not taking on enough and so <laughs> is it like a cop-out because i don't want all these opportunities i think the more we push feminism to really open up the choice and the opportunity uh, then we'll be able to see that there's like millions of models that work and you should find the one that works for you that is it doesn't mean it's going to be the one that works for like if mine won't work for my sister my sisters won't work for me yours or your or another friends may not work for each other but they all work for that person of course i've uh, read this book um the gen the genderization of money it's this book by this argentinian author called clara coria and she talks about how money is genderized you know in this society because um 
in the Judeo-Christian um, culture, right, you have kind of like two types of women. Virgin Mary, who represents kind of like the housewife and the the uh, the woman, you know, with the um, with a private life, no. And then you have Maria Magdalena, which was kind of like the prostitute of the town that had the public life, right? And nowadays, you know, uh, the woman that has kind of this private life is more a housewife that's dedicated to the home and to the kids. And the, the woman that has a public life is a woman that goes to work and have, has a, a, a business or works in a company or, you know. And it's fascinating to see how, you know, prostitution, which is like really, really, really antique, is the exchange of money for a service. And, you know, women that go out to work, no, they exchange money for service. So what this author says is that constantly the relationship and the way we deal with money, for example, asking for a raise or negotiating with a client or, you know, talking with our boss about, you know, I don't know, our end of the year bonus or something like that is always tinted by this kind of like sense of prostitution, of feeling kind of like a little bit of guilt or, or, or feeling not this empowerment kind of like man i worked for this i i deserve it you know what i mean it's always kind of like oh please i think you know it's kind of like more submissive right We're begging exactly begging kind of like please be nice to me please please you know and men is not like that it's just kind of like here are the results you know this is what i did come on you know this is what i need to take period and she also talks about the different ways to manage money inside a relationship and it's fascinating she doesn't actually tell you which one is the right one but she's exposing the benefits and the well the advantages and the disadvantages of each model and it's the one that the woman doesn't um, work and the man takes 100% care of the economic system of the house and what are the advantages and disadvantages and she talks about how men usually take care of like the uh, bigger box you know kind of like buying the trip or the house or the car and women have the small box which is like the everyday responsibility of managing the money that has a lot of responsibility but it's money that's invisible right and then she goes and develop you know when it's 75 25 50 50 then when the woman earns more than her husband and so on but it's fascinating to see there's no one size fits all and we need to touch in that authenticity of what does it work for us right have you seen yeah. women that are open to exploring new models of economic responsibility in their homes I have more and more, and I think and you recommended this book a very long time ago, and I read it, and I love it, and I agree. It's something that, so at the very least, we should read and understand and ask ourselves the questions, right? And we may keep doing the things that we're doing, eh, but I think for me, what it represents is opportunity to question what we were always told was the model, which is like you stay at home and the the husband, because on top of it, there's no opportunity for any kind of other relationship except for male-female, but uh, like not even discussing that. Um, you stay home, they provide, you administer and make sure that the sense go far enough that you can sustain the family. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has so many assumptions inside of it in terms of, how the couple works that you're going to have children who is going to uh, be responsible for bringing the money who's responsible for administering but then doesn't have a the agency to create that or to make decisions mm -hmm. on how kind of the big box gets spent etc um 
I think, digo, personally, it's a topic that I've worked on a lot because mm-hmm. I grew up with a, a very delicate relationship with money and I always felt like, no, how can I ask for it? Like that ex- exact thing. I've grown in my confidence and I've had other women share their experiences and how they deal with it. I've had men help me kind of figure out how to fight for those things. But I've also encountered men who've told me like, oh, it's like demeaning for a woman to ask for money. Like, why are you asking for money? And I I have encountered that type of a pushback in the market. And it's like really hard because you're like, oh, don't cry. Like, don't backtrack and like stick to your guns. You did the work. You're asking for payment of a contract. Don't feel bad, but they use that against you to be able to then kind of create an asymmetric position of power, which I think is like terrible. Um, And what I've seen with other women is very different models and each one works kind of differently. For me, the main thing is like, understand what makes you uncomfortable about money, understand what makes you comfortable or where you kind of are already uh, moving comfortably and have the conversations and ask the questions and try out different models until you find something that works for you. And remember that nothing is like (laughs) forever, but you need to test out different things to eventually see what works for the longer term. Because no? otherwise, we, we don't ask the questions now. And then by the time we ask them, it's a little late. Too late. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's important to open the conversation about money, right? So there are two main topics that have a lot of taboos in, in any relationship. Doesn't mean to, it doesn't necessarily need to be a couple's relationship. It could be friendships, it could be you know, partnerships, whatever. And you know the two main topics, this one's in relationships, are sex and money right? And money is present in any other kind of relationships. And every day, since the moment that we wake up, we have to do at some point with money. Either we have a subscription, either we grab an Uber, either we buy a cup of coffee, either whatever we do, we are every day in a constant uh, exposure with money. And it, it fascinates me that it's not a topic that we talk and even more women, I'm kind of like women feel like uncomfortable most of the time. Like, no, I don't want to talk about that topic or, or kind of like, you know, if they need to talk something about with their partner and like business partner or like, you know, relationship partner is like a topic that they tend to like move away. Right. And we need to add this conversation for more women to feel more comfortable about talking about these economic activities. Cause it's completely normal. It's something that we are engaged with every day of our lives and I wanted to ask you um, with the work that you've done inside CREA what has been the Achilles heel in the common denominator that you had to work more with women is it mindset is it kind of like economic or financial knowledge Um, things about taxes it's about what beliefs management security what is it uh, i i <laughs> this is, it's a really good question because i i built today and i was like okay we're going to measure returns and we're going to measure profits and we're going to be focused on kind of how the women are performing and financials and all of this hard data 
And so we built the services and we uh, were tracking these things and constantly asking them. And they're like, oh, let's see. And they would answer, but there was like zero passion behind it. And then we actually started asking them, like, what's the thing you like most about Crea? And they're like, I find a space that is safe for me to ask about my business, to ask about money, to ask about questions without feeling like I am dumb or that I don't know enough or that I'm not good enough. That's so first shame. and foremost, mm -hmm. it was that safe space a, that was guilt-free, shame-free, and where they could really like be themselves and ask the questions they wanted to ask. A, so that was the first like, ah. <laughs> And then the second, they That's were like, fascinating. Also, feeling safe in a place that that is not going to add some shamefulness to them. So, so that was like really, really eye opening because it was like, oh, okay. So then it matters. We were very careful in what, how we curate, you know, the spaces that it used to be physical. Now with COVID, it's become uh, primarily virtual. But even there, like you curate who's in the room who's training them, no? So they, we would see very different dynamics and results if the trainers were male, female, a mix, like all of that generated the type of space where they felt comfortable in, in growing. What and happens, then the second- Sorry, I just want to ask, what happens if the trainer was male or female? What was the difference? It works really well with female or a mix. If it's only male, the women tend to ask a lot less questions. Mm. And the assumption is like, okay, if he said white, it's white. <laughs> I'm not going okay. to question it. <laughs> like, I take it. Uh, uh, and um, so we did a lot of analysis around that. And the other thing that I think was the most important uh, breakthrough beyond like realizing that they found that safe space where they could develop was helping them understand that the worlds they were living in and their businesses were not zero sum. Yeah. So their perception of how the world worked was like, if my neighbor is doing better than I am, then there's no room for me to grow. Mm -hmm. And so there was a very a common occurrence where If one of the women started doing really well and started selling her products, et cetera, the rest, instead of being like excited, would get concerned and then would start like trying to block her from selling that or would like copy everything to like stop the, the rise of any of them, et cetera. And so changing that to showing them that if one of them is doing better, they can all do better. Because if she's selling more, then there may be more business for all of them. The demand will grow, and so she'll need others to produce. Um, that sort of thing, for me, is the biggest contribution that we've been able to make beyond that that leads to them generating income, et cetera. But like the root of it was changing that uh, understanding that the world is zero-sum. And course. if we think of... Uh, most people in Mexico and in a lot of Latin America, because of the inequalities that exist, because you can't really think about abundance and like positive sum worlds because you're trying to figure out how you're going to eat tomorrow if you have enough money for your kids to go to school or to go to the doctor. So it really is something that's deeply ingrained and affirmed every day. Of course. Of and so you really have to change. 
and it's kind of like changing this mindset or this worldview. I think that's a better word for competition. Instead, it's like, no, no, if, if that other woman is, you know, doing a good job, then eventually I need to do something so, no, so I can win or that that woman could be kind of like, you know, below me at some point and to change that worldview of competition to cooperation. Because if one of the team actually rises and shines, eventually you could be learning more about if your friend is successful or the person that you are in working with, right? Because I don't know, the, um, the feedback that that person can give you, the experience, the things that you're going to learn through her, right? So that actually helps. And it's kind of like a more, uh, like this new openness of these new cooperative models that we're starting to see. And those cooperative models exist since we are like, since the beginning of humanity, for example, so that, that you know, saying that it takes a village to raise a child, you know, we were all raised back in the day as human beings in tribes, in a community. It wasn't like, you know, this single unit mom that just had a baby, right? The father goes back to work. The mom is sleep deprived, you know, hasn't had time for herself and everything, taking care of the responsibility. And back in the days, it was like somebody taught you how to breastfeed and another woman, you know, took your baby while you were able to take a nap. And it was everything about community, that, that, that safeness. And it's interesting to see how this new <laughs> uh, model that we are experiencing right now, it actually could be hurting, right? And, and, and making less advancement of, you know, women arriving to this um, equal wage gap, right? Because for example, we've seen that, you know, there will not, well, many studies report that there will not be equal payment unless parents also take paternity leave and that parents also get involved with the raising of the kids. And if that doesn't happen, no, what you were mentioning that, you know, most of these feminist movements are only made by women for women, right? And about women. And if we don't add men to the conversation, eventually we're not going to arrive to something that could be sustainable in the long term, right? And, and, I, and, I, and I think a lot of men, promote that no they're like yeah yeah just leave it in the women on the women's side because then they don't have to <laughs> become a part of the solution or the conversation of course it's more like being in your comfort zone right so it's it's, it's more complicated to be at work and then do the kids and then you're having like eight thousand responsibilities at the same time but how far do you think we are from implementing policies like that i know that each country is completely different but <laughs> See, but I, I think um unfortunately we're i think we're still far because i think in, instead of making progress like we read the news and we see how every day they're trying to uh, hinder reproductive rights for women uh, they're pushing back on progress that we had made around labor rights or around um having care caregiving uh, for companies uh, provided for free by the state or having longer uh, school days so that women can stay at work longer and they're not having to pay for a like extra support in the afternoons or having to find who's going to care for their children no so i think there's a lot to do in that space uh, and that has to come but from a combination of regulation support government support private is support and kind of really <laughs> cooperation across the board so that we find solutions that are uh, equitable. And there's like, there have been 
attempts in Mexico, for example, of like saying, okay, if you become formalized, no, so Mexico has a huge informal economy. So if women become formalized, we'll provide them with childcare. It's like, yes, but you're not taking into account that those women live in remote areas and there's no child childcare next to their home. So they have to drive or get public transportation or walk for hours because the most likely scenario is that they'll have to walk to bring their, ch their child. So there's no incentive and it's not really a solution. So mm -hmm. a lot of times I think there's also solutions that are built from the top without taking into consideration the realities of that course. those women face. They're really and far from the realities, right? It maybe could be good intentions, but <laughs> in the practice, it's something that doesn't work. <laughs> and something that I wanted to, to say is one of the things we saw at CREA is about 60% of the women that become entrepreneurs became entrepreneurs because they need to self-employ not because they wanted to be entrepreneurs, no? And I think there's this whole, like, a mystique around being an entrepreneur and how cool it is, et cetera. And I would say it's not for everyone. Like, yeah. it is hard work. It can get really lonely. It has, like, huge ups and downs, et cetera. And part of that collaboration, in the case of Crea, meant women realizing they could support other women who did want to be entrepreneurs and who had yeah. these incredible dreams, to be able to execute on that vision and that dream mm -hmm. and they could just do a job get paid and be able to provide for their families mm -hmm. and so i think also like providing the space for people to identify whether they want to become entrepreneurs or whether they'd rather do an incredible job supporting a, other entrepreneurs or working in companies so that the economy can thrive and so that we can all collaborate is also key no mm -hmm. totally I just, um, just by, by, by this, what you said reminded me of this article called The Psychological Price of Entrepreneurship. And this article is written by Michael Freeman, which he's a, a psychotherapist that you know, became quite famous around Palo Alto and Silicon Valley area. And he talks about why entrepreneurship is not for everybody. And his point is that most entrepreneurs tend to confuse their identity with the business identity right so imagine that no, if the business is thriving then of course his his or her identity is just kind of like Ooh, rock star this is working amazing i have nothing to work myself i am super talented and that's it right but usually as in any business no it has its ups and downs and um and when it's going low it creates like this psychological crisis because it's kind of like your whole self-esteem, your whole identity, your whole essence is kind of like falling down. And it's not only the mix with shame and failure and, you know, sadness, but it's this kind of like loss of identity. And he talked about women tend to have this identity attached to something outside of them. And at the beginning was maybe who they married, right? Kind of like this book of um, these Greek models of women that exist in female psychology from, um, I can't remember the name of the author, I will remember in a bit. And, you know, that was Era, which is, you know, the archetypes, no? With exactly, the archetypes of the women. exactly. The Greek archetypes. And um, and it was one that had the, their identity by, by marrying Zeus, right? Then another one had her identity by becoming a mother. Another one had the identity by being the daughter 
of someone or someone important, right? And you know, most of the times, like women having their identity related to something else, and then we have the three new goddesses that are you know independent that that their their identities come from the work they do, right? And then you have, you know, the opinion of Michael Freeman that it's about, okay, they also drive, thrive well, but when the business is going to hell, these women are constantly finding their identity outside of themselves. And I think it's also an important point to discuss about the importance of females to find their own identity, their essence of who they are, not being related to what they do. What can you expand on that? Yeah, I would say I think that's important for anyone, not just women, but very specifically for women, because we tend to be the ones that never even like broach the subject. No, um, but this is something that I actually kind of gave a lot of thought to at the end of last year, because it's like whenever someone asks us, like, who are you? You like by default, tell them what you do, not who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um like I read this book called Wanting, which is about the power of mimetic desire and how a lot of times like other people's desires is what we emulate and then we build from there without actually kind of that being a part of who we are or what we really want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just say like, it has been incredibly difficult, but incredibly rewarding to ask myself, like what what the value what kind of value I bring throughout everything that I do mm-hmm. that is not attached to the what. No? Mm-hmm. So it, it goes beyond the title. It goes beyond the actual job or the company that you're you're building or investing in. It's about the value that you bring. And if we could all like really focus on that, then whenever they talk about like universal base income and the fact that you wouldn't need to do anything, well, you could actually choose to do those things where you contribute the most that feed your soul that make you feel energized that align with your values no and evidently it's a privilege that very few of us have Mm -hmm. because unfortunately most people have to ask themselves how they're going to pay for their their expenses no so it's not i i don't want to frame it in a way where it sounds like oh you can just ask yourself and pick no But if you have the privilege of being able to ask that question, then it should kind of be a responsibility to ask that question and open up those opportunities because that will allow you to actually thrive and open opportunities for others. Of course. And can you share a little bit of uh, some examples of that, what, you know, what opening to that essence means? Like for example... What is it for you that's not attached to achievements? I think one thing that I did that was really rewarding is I tend to focus on my shortcomings and the things that I didn't do as well as I should have. And I forget to celebrate the little things that were amazing. No, yeah. So one of those things was like literally writing down in little pieces of paper and then filling a jar mm-hmm. with all of the things that I was able to accomplish and that I contributed that didn't have to do with like a specific goal or my title, but that like actually, you no, know, derived from what I can bring of course, into a relationship. 
it's kind of like changing or giving a different sense of, of bringing what's ordinary into looking at it as extraordinary, right? Exactly. Because every day we can say, oh, our lives are ordinary. But no, if you actually wake up in the morning and you see the sun and you give thanks for your life and you give thanks that you have a roof and you give thanks for, you know, uh, your breakfast and the conversations that you have and, you know, the interactions, the human connections that you have around you, then everything becomes extraordinary. You get so rich. For example, something for me, I think is, you know, just to give more examples, it's uh, curiosity, for example, curiosity and learning kind of like that is kind of like an internal compass that I have that I love to learn. And sometimes you know, I don't mind if it's an achievement or not, or if it's outside kind of like, you know, public or anything like that. It's just kind of like genuinely, I love that, you know, uh, interest in learning or, or getting to know new things. And I kind of like lead, led you know, curiosity to bring me or to lead me into new understandings and new things, right? So I think that's something fascinating, part of my essence that I feel so kind of like rich inside, no? And um, instead of, you know, putting some things attached, you know, for external approval, <laughs> because at the end we can get the approval that we want, but if we don't approve internally, anybody could approve us outside and it's not going to make any difference, <laughs> right? Totally. And I think eh, that type of exploration and curiosity and like putting attention to the small things allows you to then make connections that you wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. No. And so there's like this, as you know, as people may not know, but I love knitting and I love like crafting, no. And there's this incredible artist that builds coral reefs out of crochet mm -hmm. because she, found that the only way to represent the mathematical models of corals and fractals is through embroidery mm. because the type of stitching that you do creates those like weird curves etc and no one had been able to do that physically mm -hmm. they had to do it in like computer models and they could illustrate how it worked or you could look at the coral but you couldn't make a representation of it mm. and this woman by knitting realized that you could do that no and so that type of like exploration and curiosity and just like diving into whatever subject uh, you're interested in can lead to discoveries in very different areas that can then uh, provide ideas for businesses or can provide examples of how you can help communities thrive in different ways or build value for uh, someone. So I think it's, it's exciting, clearly. Yeah, exciting. <laughs> because when you have to do with different disciplines, you have a different approach. And that's why kind of like this new term, I don't know if you heard it called multipotentialite. That is the people that, that, you know, you know, it kind of like the, the musician that was born knowing that he or she was a musician, you know, and there's yeah. people that kind of like have many different careers right and they seem some people might see them as like okay they're lost but no eventually it's kind of like those people who are called multipotentialites are the people that bring kind of like the connecting dots between different disciplines and they need to become maybe at some point engineers for five years and then maybe they become artists and then maybe they become i don't know a poet or a designer and then at some point in their career they start mixing you know engineers with design with poetry and create kind of like a new way of understanding of one of their fields and it's fascinating because you're using both hemispheres of your brain to approach different angles and that's very rich 
It is. And I, I am now I'm like, huh, I don't think I'm a multi-potentialite because <laughs> I'm so in awe of multi-potentialites that I can think of that I'm like, no, then I'm not. <laughs> no, but come on. You have women entrepreneurship. You have social entrepreneurship. You have disruptive innovation. You have building communities. <laughs> you have technology. Come on. You need... <laughs> So let's see what Leti Khabri creates in a few years, you know, like this new discipline by mixing knitting with food and, <laughs> and disruptive <Exactly>. innovation. <laughs> oh yeah, and you know, just the last question, you know, to close. Um What can, I know you mentioned that, you know, there's lots of, you know, policy changes that need to be done. And I know that there's lots of responsibility in governments. I understand that. But I want to ask you, how can we support as civilians, as, you know, people in helping women entrepreneurship and women empowerment and social entrepreneurship around the world? What can we do to help? I think there's bigger things and smaller things. The very small things I would say that anyone can do is if you know a woman who's starting a business or who is interested in starting a business or who has an incredible uh, product or service, like promote them and tell everyone about them. And every time they ask you for a referral for any for anything, think of a woman that mm -hmm. you can refer. No? So that's like a tiny thing that we can do. I think if we kind of go a little above that, they, we are all part of the system and we all help perpetuate it or change it or kind of re reinvent it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so even if the government doesn't have policies that encourage uh, women participating in the job sector or a female entrepreneurship, like what can we do to make sure that there's women at the table? So if you're hiring, Like it is a lot more costly and time consuming to make sure that you have equal representation and diverse representation, because it's not just about it's the men and women. It's about like diversity and inclusion in the broader sense of hmm. a racial inclusion, depending on where you live, that may look very differently, you know, but make sure that you take the time and invest in having that diversity of candidates for a job. Mm -hmm. If you already have the company, like open up the flexibility and spaces for any model to work. So don't place the burden of women not wanting a promotion on the woman, because if what they're seeing is that you have to be there 24 seven in order to be promoted and in order to be successful, then they're gonna self-select out of the process yeah. because they don't want or cannot invest those 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So you need to create the cultures that allow for that. You can't just say, oh, I really want it, but the women don't want it. No, like, did you create the space for it? Did you ask what is what is not working that makes for that imbalance, et cetera, et cetera. And then like above that, like how do we make sure that we keep encouraging funders and questioning them when there's not diversity in their portfolios, when there's no women on boards, when there's no women on a panel, like, Every single time we see that, let's push back and let's not just push back, but say, and there's these three women that could have sat on that board, that could have been on that panel, that could have interviewed for that job, that could have uh, gotten that funding. No? Mm -hmm. So that kind of brings us full circle to like always have women that you can recommend top of mind 
so that we start opening those spaces and creating that balance of course supporting each other we still have a lot of work to do a lot of work to do thank you so much Leti. this conversation was wonderful thank you so much for your insights for everything that you've learned in your career and um your thoughts are very valuable thank you thank you so much i would like to to close with a few questions if you could answer in one or few words it doesn't need to be one specifically but just kind of like keep it short <laughs> please yes for you art is life your favorite author is the stevenson who wrote a uh, snow crash mm. and advice that changed your life it's that quote by Maya Angelou, like people won't remember what you did or what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. The best quality in humans. Gratitude. A book that you recommend. The token economy. <laughs> it's the one that I've read recently and that it will help people understand all of the evolution with web three metaverse DAO everything that's happened mm, i'm gonna read that thank you that's on my next on my list <laughs> what feeds your soul knitting. friends and family <laughs> and knitting and food <laughs> can food feed your soul yes <laughs> the most pressing issue for humanity inequality i agree on you if humans can agree on this, you will be very happy. That we should all have the opportunity to choose. What would you like to scream to the whole world? That I love them. <laughs> <laughs> what do you expect with joy in 2022? doing an all-girls trip with my mother sister and nieces <laughs> yes being around females around women kind of like nurtures your soul no it could be mom sisters friends right yeah what is it that you have lived that no one could miss experiencing it oh that's a really good question um i had the incredible fortune of visiting a temple in bhutan it was the knee of Buddha. So if you go to Bhutan, they tell you that all the temples are in the shape of Buddha and it was the knee. So, <laughs> um, but just anywhere in the world, if you can experience a big amount of people focusing their attention on a specific thing, in this case, it was chanting and kilometers away, you could feel the vibration. Mm. And as we got closer and closer, it was like really I don't think I've ever lived anything similar to that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it has to be in Bhutan or that temple, but just so much energy focused on a single thing that is so repetitive and so like a meditative, I think is incredible. And the power of collective attention huh? to this yeah. thing. Exactly. Wow. That's fascinating. That was a lot of words. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I was, thank you so much, Leti. It was wonderful to have you here in one podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your experience. And it was wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Marion. And thank you for being one of those women that champions people in general, but also your friends, your sisters, and everyone that admires you. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Wafa. Bye. Want to keep the conversation going? Luan, the world's first emotional museum, designed a global online experience to inspire and explore. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Telegram, and visit our site at luanmuseum.com to engage creatively.